Father, we thank you so much for the promise of Christ, Christ's resurrection, which means that his sacrifice was indeed accepted by you and was acceptable. It did indeed satisfy your wrath for our sin. And Lord, it also guarantees our own resurrection. We look forward to that day. Lord, I pray that you'd give us a response to that, to these truths, a response of obedience, a response of attentiveness to your word. Lord, your word brought us life, and your word sanctifies us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would have your work in us today, save and sanctify your people. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's always a blessing to be with you. This is Palm Sunday. If you were with us a little over a year ago, we were studying Matthew 21. You know it's possible that the triumphal entry happened on a Monday, but Christians for centuries have celebrated Palm Sunday, this magnificent entry of Christ into the region of Jerusalem just about a week before His, or the week of His crucifixion. There was thrilling celebration. We learned probably much of it was mindless, but this began Passion Week, the week that displayed Jesus' greatest love, His greatest passion, which was to do the will of God in becoming the atoning sacrifice. Matthew spent seven chapters and half of an eighth on that Passion Week, so that's more than a quarter well, nigh a third of his gospel is just covering that one week. Two of those chapters are on the drama of the last day, the final hours with his disciples, his arrest, the fleeing and denial of his disciples, his false trials, and then what took place on the cross. As I've said, these were the saddest darkest hours of human history. No greater evil has ever been committed before or since. No concentration of sin by all involved to get Him on the cross. While Jesus, the only one who was truly innocent, was being put to death as a perfect Lamb of God, laying down His life for the many. As you know, Jesus was arrested in the middle of the night, probably just after midnight, early Friday morning. After a little scuffle involving Peter there, they bound him. They took him to the courtyard of the villa of the high priest, and there he stood his religious trials before the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, who would be the main elements of the Sanhedrin. If there was ever a trial that was a mockery of justice, that was it. They have violated numerous laws about trials, about accusations, about a defense. Any kind of fairness was lost. They rushed this whole thing through so they could kill him as quickly as possible. Witnesses were bribed, and they were bribed by the judges and the prosecutors who were involved in this. What was their basic accusation? Blasphemy. They said, he makes himself to be God. 
to be the Messiah. But instead of doing what Jewish religious courts were supposed to do, open the Old Testament scrolls and compare his claims to Scripture, they screeched and screamed and tore their robes in bogus outrage and declared him worthy of death and instantly began to beat him and spit on him, the Son of God. These Jewish religious leaders, as powerful as they were, they did not have the power to execute, at least on that particular day, the Passover. Moreover, they wanted to maximize his shame and pain. So they needed to hand this over to the political leaders of the day. They also wanted to keep up their hypocrisy. They had the veneer of doing things the right way, even though everything they did was the wrong way, the wrong thing. They wanted to keep up this hypocrisy, and so they turned this over to Pilate, the governor. So they brought him to this Roman governor, Pilate, and the political trials of Jesus began. One thing everything, everyone knew about Pilate is that he was afraid of insurrection. They also knew that Pilate wouldn't care one iota about blasphemy or their religion, and so they brought the accusation, not the accusation they had originally made of blasphemy, they brought the accusation of insurrection. If they could convince Pilate that Jesus was an insurrectionist, they could get what they wanted. They could get him to murder the Son of God. Well, Pilate still was smart enough to see their uh, lies, and he rejected their logic. But instead of releasing Jesus, he declared himself in it, innocent, but to save his own neck, he had Jesus tortured and executed. Now, this is exactly what happened. Beginning around 9 a.m., the Roman soldiers took Jesus. They beat Him. They stabbed Him. They mocked Him. They played games with His torture. They flogged Him. By the end of their torture, they had torn out His beard, planted a crown of thorns on His head, essentially skinned Him alive with their scourging. They took him to Golgotha, required him to carry his cross, which he couldn't, and made their way to this high visible hill, hill right on the main road just outside the city. And there they nailed him to a cross, hoisted him up with some criminals so all could see. They continued their mockery and torture while he was up on the cross. They continued to deride him continued to torture him until he finally died. That happened about 3 p.m. To ensure his death, they took a sword, plunged it up underneath his ribs and into his heart, piercing his heart. Well, throughout this whole ordeal, there were still friends of Jesus. Well, not Quakers, friends of Jesus. Not long-haired friends of Jesus in a chartreuse microbus. People who truly love Jesus, they watched this whole thing happen. And even as Jesus died, they continued to worship Him and serve Him and love Him. 
At the same time, his enemies continued to torture him and mock him. And these two groups are illustrated in the passage we're looking at today, the end of Matthew 27. The question you have to ask yourself, am I a friend or am I an enemy of Jesus Christ? Folks, we live in a day, I have no doubt whatsoever, the people of our nation, the people of our world, even the people in our government would do the same thing to Jesus if He were alive today. There is such astonishing and increasing spite, malice from the very top offices of our country, spite for truth, spite for morality, spite for human life, love of wickedness, hatred of Scripture, that is to say, hatred for God. It's becoming increasingly clear that conservative, Bible-believing Christians are not welcome in this country. They are considered as extremists, right-wing, by most people who control our government and certainly most people who control the media. Our privilege and protected status is disintegrating. But what is vastly more important than fighting to protect your American rights is that you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after Jesus. It's to be a friend of Jesus. And that's the piercing application of today's passage. Are you a friend of Jesus? Well, let's read this text. The friends and enemies of Jesus, my prayer is that you would pursue Him regardless of what's happening in the world, regardless of the price that you might have to pay for being a friend of Jesus. Matthew 27, I'm going to begin in 55 and go all the way to the end of the chapter. Like I said, Jesus at this point had died, and what is evident right in front of Him are these two groups, friends and enemies of Jesus. Follow along. As I read aloud, there are also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of, son, of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in clean, a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and it went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be greater, will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, 
One of the things that we are blessed with in life is change. Change in job, change in location. Even if you stay put, sometimes you have a change in situation, change in neighbors maybe, change in family if you're marrying into a family or perhaps somebody's marrying into your family. Change is a blessing because with changes we are provided an opportunity to sort of reinvent ourselves or at least live up to those things that we know we should have been living up to all along. Maybe we can do better than we did before to be a more faithful follower of Jesus Christ, maybe be a better witness. You don't want to be that person, right, that you, you live next to somebody or perhaps you work with somebody and after doing that for 10 years, they figure out you're a Christian and look at you and say, you're a Christian? Surprised. You want to be someone who has established the fact that you're a follower of Jesus, that you're a friend of Jesus. Our objective in life, in our process of sanctification, our objective is to be distinctively Christian, to evidence in our lives that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, how can we do this? Well, there's several answers. All are necessary and overlapping. The first way, probably the most obvious way, is to be someone who shares the gospel, someone who faithfully gives the gospel of, uh, to others. You speak the gospel, perhaps Maybe you're not as bold as some people might be, but you find ways to give tracts, to talk about Christ, to introduce the ideas of the gospel to others. You find ways in your conversation to introduce them to the truth of Jesus Christ, knowing that really the truth of the gospel is the only thing that the Holy Spirit uses to awaken people's heart to the gospel and grant them repentance and faith. And so you want to give them that hope. You want to give them those truths. I was speaking with Lena Viliamu earlier this week. Her grandson has a girlfriend, and I love to talk to her about this because she is always telling me how she talks to this young lady about Christ. And she told me the other day, she asked this young lady if she could read her a whole book of the Bible, and the girl said yes. And Lena sat there and read the whole book of Ruth to her. What are some other ways we can be distinctively Christian Another way is that we act like Christ in our language and our temperament. That is to say, we have Christian character. We have humility. We have kindness. We have strength of conviction, but we don't do it with pride. We have humility. We have the ability to control our, our language that is supposed to set us apart, the way we talk, the way we use our words. We learn not to curse like others do. We learn not to gossip and spread lies like other people do. We learn not to get irritated or frustrated or angry, been out of shape with others. And thus we demonstrate in our language, in our character, in our attitude that we are followers and friends of Jesus. What's another way we can be distinctly Christian? Another way is our response to hardship. How you suffer is going to tell people about your relationship with Christ. When you're diagnosed with cancer, when you have a rebellious child, when you have marriage problems and your neighbors and friends or lost family knows about it, what kind of response do you have? How do you handle these things? I guess the flip side would be true as well. How do you handle success? Are you arrogant, proud, domineering? What kind of person are you in your response to hardship, suffering, 
but also success. One other thing I wrote down here in terms of being distinctly Christian, I think it would be important to note, and that is your habits. Does your life revolve around Jesus Christ? If someone were to go through and look at your calendar and just mark what you do with your time and your energy, is it, is it they, they look at your life and they say, well, they spend one hour going to church on Sunday, but other than that, they live just like me. Or is this someone who clearly is dedicated to Christ, who's clearly dedicated to things of God, the people of God, the work of God? Certainly, it's not wrong to enjoy a football game or go surfing or whatever. But at the same time, shouldn't we have our habits and our lifestyle and our schedule revolve around Jesus Christ? Well, there's another way, and this is our focus this morning. In a certain sense, what we're talking about today really covers everything I've just mentioned, really the summary idea of everything. And what is it? What is this overarching, dominating Christian distinctive Christian characteristic? Here it is. It's a deep, loving, enduring commitment to the person of Jesus Christ. You love Jesus. Do you love Jesus? Do you think of Jesus? Talk of Jesus? Worship Jesus? Act like Jesus? Believe like Jesus? Do you seek to help others to do the same? Just think about the context here. I spent some time at the first part of the message going through all that's happened. At this point, Jesus is a convicted felon. He's being executed for being an insurrectionist as far as the Romans were concerned and being a a blasphemer as far as the religious authorities in Israel were concerned. And yet here are these ladies, and here is Joseph of Arimathea loving him, following him at no small risk to their own lives, defying the, the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities. Also, they can be near and worship Jesus. I think when we read this, we're supposed to think, I want to be like these people. These are the kind of people I want to be like. Then you read the second half of what we read today, the enemies of Jesus, beginning in verse 27, and you think the exact opposite. That's, that's who I want to avoid being, and avoid in terms of supporting and affiliating with and following people who hate Jesus, the Bible and truth. So here we are at the very end. Jesus has died, and it's a test. Who is a friend and who is an enemy of Jesus? What are they doing? All right, two very simple ideas this morning, one about the friends of Jesus, another about the enemies of Jesus, each one with a summary of what they're doing. First of all, friends of Jesus follow, serve, and give. Jesus' followers are doing these three things. Let's read again, beginning at verse 55. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to Him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now it says, first of all, there are many women there. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, who's known as Mary Clopas, and another lady unnamed, and who was the mother... She was the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. We know from John's account there were also other people there. It does say 
These ladies were among others. So there were other people there. We know from John's account that the mother of Jesus was there. All these ladies were named Mary. You walk into that crowd and say, Mary, 20 women would turn around and look at you. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. We know that John, the apostle, eventually joined this group. We know this because Jesus spoke directly to his mother and John from the cross. So there's all these ladies there. You have this little congregation of people. You could also now include some of the soldiers we talked about last time, these soldiers who had professed with their leader, professed that Jesus is the Son of God. You have this small congregation there, mainly made up of women. Matthew said they were watching from a distance. Same thing Luke said. Same thing Matthew had said earlier about Peter. You remember Peter, after he had denied Jesus, followed Jesus from a distance. But the meaning there, even though it's the same word, the meaning is a little bit different. In fact, the idea, just in context, what you get from Peter is that he's trying to keep his distance from Jesus, whereas these people are trying to get as close as possible. I'm sure they're prevented by the Roman soldiers who were doing their work and crucifying these people. But they're at least close enough where they can have a conversation with Jesus on the cross. So that tells you they're, they're not a far distance. They're close enough to even speak to Jesus. The distance for them is a distance of nearness, a distance of trying to be as close as they possibly can. And I imagine them there, this little congregation there, praying and weeping, perhaps encouraging Jesus. How are these folks described? Verse 55, these ladies had followed Jesus from Galilee. They'd been with Him. They'd been with Him all along the way. We can assume that since some of them were the parents, the mothers of the disciples, they had started following Jesus when their sons did. For three years they had followed Him. They had ministered to Him. They had supported Him. They had followed Him everywhere, around Galilee, through Samaria, up to Jerusalem, back to Galilee, and back to Jerusalem. They'd heard and seen His work. They'd studied Him. They they'd believed His doctrine. When He preached, they believed Him and followed Him. Well, this gives us that first trait of a friend of Jesus. To be a friend of Jesus, you will follow Him. You'll follow Him. Back in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, there, was some, there were some theologians, even a whole seminary, Dallas Seminary, who formalized the idea that a person can become a Christian but not follow Jesus. And so the only thing that's necessary to be a Christian is simple intellectual affirmation of the gospel. If you do that, you're fine. You can actually live the life of a devil and still go to heaven because in your mind you believed If you mentally acquiesce to the truths of Jesus, you don't have to make Him your Lord. You don't have to follow Him. You don't have to fellowship with the saints. You don't have to care even about the bride of Christ. You don't have to worship, nothing. You just mentally acknowledge Jesus, do those things. You do not have to make Him Lord of your life. That's a separate step. And that happens later on, they taught. That happens later on in the Christian walk. This thinking was actually really, got really popular for a while. I think it's 
died down a bit, but it got popular for a while. When I was growing up, people would give a testimony about how they you know, became a Christian at age two, but then lived the life of a devil, and one day they decided to make Jesus their Lord. And I was a Christian all along, but at some point I had to decide to make Jesus my Lord. I heard this over and over again many times. According to this doctrine, essentially, there are two echelons of Christians. Christians who are going to heaven, but Jesus is not their Lord. They live the lives of the devil. And then Christians who follow Christ, who have made Jesus their Lord. This thinking, as you might imagine, led to all kinds of problems, all kinds of bizarre ideas, one of them being that you had a lot of people out there, out in the world, believing that because they mentally affirm the things of Jesus, they're Christians and they go to heaven. They don't have to worry about anything else. And then you had another group of people who sort of patted themselves on the back because they thought, well, I'm on a, in echelon too. I'm, I'm right near the top. I've made Jesus my Lord, unlike all these other people that haven't done that yet. Well, this became quite a controversy. It was known as the lordship controversy, the lordship salvation controversy. And like I said, the whole issue sort of died out. Why? Because there are so many verses which teach us that to be a Christian is indeed to follow Jesus. It's one and the same thing. When God regenerates a heart and opens a person's eyes to the gospel, truly opens their eyes to the gospel, He compels them to have faith in Christ and repent. The evidence of that faith is repentance, is following Jesus. There's no such, easy, it's no such thing as easy believism, which is the, another name for this idea. Either He's Lord of your life or... You're not a Christian. Listen to Luke chapter 14, verse 27. Jesus says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Then in verse 33, So therefore, if any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Matthew chapter 16, you remember, here's this great profession of faith that Peter gives. It's truth. It's doctrine. Jesus doesn't say to him, now as long as people just believe this, they're going to heaven, they can do whatever they want after that. No, Peter says something quite foolish. Jesus renounces them, and then he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's what it means to be a disciple. It's not just the belief part, it's also the fellowship. True faith will manifest itself in following Jesus Christ. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, in Christ, we are a new creation. Old things have passed away and new things have come. Well, for this idea of easy believism, that wouldn't be true. James delineated chapter 2 of his letter. There are two kinds of faith, a false faith and a true faith. A, a false faith is the kind of faith that says, oh, I believe, but it doesn't change their life. True faith is demonstrated in good behavior in following after Jesus. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. Did Jesus die just simply to get people to believe some facts and go to heaven no matter what they live like? No, Paul said. Jesus died, quote, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Of course, Ephesians 2, great chapter, teaches us we're saved 
by grace through faith, not works, lest anyone should boast. However, Paul said that does not mean the work, good works following Christ is detached from salvation. Verse 10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in Him. We may not be saved by works, but we are saved to good works. That's the objective of God saving us, to glorify Him in us by our following after Jesus. Well, all that to say this. This is an obvious distinctive of two true Christians. They follow after Jesus. They pursue Jesus. They think often and talk often. And, and really, each morning, perhaps when they get up and read their Bible, or perhaps in the evening, they get up and they think that thought, I need to follow Jesus. What is it for me to follow Jesus today? Lord, help me follow your Son and be like Jesus today. These people who wake up and they read their Bible and they read the words of Jesus and say, I believe, even if some of this stuff is hard for me to believe, I believe it because Jesus said it. The question is, are people around you, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, would they say, oh yeah, he's a follower of Jesus. He really is intent on following Jesus. True believers, true friends, these people follow Jesus even if it could have cost them their lives as they stood there before Him. True believers follow Him. They also serve Jesus. The word there that's used to describe these disciples is where we get the word deacon. And truly, it's the genesis of the idea of deacon in the New Testament church began with primarily these ladies who silently, quietly, all throughout His ministry, ministered to Him. We hardly ever hear of these people. We don't know much about these ladies. They're not leading and dominating and speaking and conversing and doing all these things, making public decorations and speeches. No, the apostles had that role. Their job was to serve. If you're new with us, uh, we have ministry team leaders and family group leaders. These are our deacons, so to speak. These, we call them church servants here. And the reason we call them church servants is because we want to emphasize what that original office was from the book of Acts. It is to serve. For some time, there were a number of churches. It doesn't seem to be as popular anymore, but last, at least... Uh, 30, 40 years ago, it seemed like a lot of churches would have a bunch of deacons, which usually were a bunch of wealthy men who ran the church and ran off the pastors they don't like. That's what deacons were, but deacons did not originate in that way. It was all about service. It was all about quiet servitude. Again, look at your own life. Could you say that about your relationship with Jesus? I'm I'm His servant. I seek to serve Him. Think of these ladies. They would have the urge soon after this, on Sabbath, after the Sabbath ended, to finish their ministry by completing the anointing that would have happened. And we're going to talk about Joseph of Arimathea in a moment. He didn't have time to, to properly anoint the body and, and embalm the body with the spices. And they, they sought to continue to minister to Him and because of their desire to minister to Him, they were the ones who were blessed. 
to see the resurrected Christ and hear about that resurrection before anybody else. There's a purity here. There's a selfless love, a, a morality here. They've served Him all along, and nothing's changed for them. They still served Him. As they stood at the foot of His cross, they still worshipped Him. You know what Jesus said about people who are pure like this? They have the pure desire, not for acclaim, not for attention, not for authority. They simply want to serve out of the purity of their heart. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they will see God. It's called the beatific vision. These ladies did see God. One of them saw Him before anyone else would. The final aspect that we discover about the friends of Jesus was evident not in these ladies, but in an individual. You all know his name is Joseph, and he's from a town called Arimathea. Joseph was a wealthy man. He was part of the Sanhedrin. We don't know what role he played. I, I broke down the Sanhedrin for you some time ago. He would have been one of those people there, could have been a priest, probably not, probably some other efficient. We know Nicodemus was also... Uh, on the Sanhedrin. He was there because he was a priest. But aside from Nicodemus and Joseph, everyone voted in favor on that group, the Sanhedrin, to execute Jesus. Joseph, we're told by Luke, voted against it or abstained from the vote. Mark tells us that this man was quote, looking for the kingdom, which means he believed the Bible, he believed the Messiah was coming, he put his faith and trust in God and, and the hope of God, the, the coming Messiah. He was genuinely waiting, sort of like Simeon and Anna. And so no doubt when Jesus came and began to do his ministry, Joseph of Arimathea, much like Simeon and Anna when they first met Jesus, he, his heart leapt for joy, he worshiped Christ in his heart, he followed his ministry, and then when his own peers, the Sanhedrin, brought him before, he, he stuck out like a sore thumb by voting against them and not consenting to Jesus' death. Now, at that point, this is all we know of Joseph. Joseph, like many disciples, could have fled, could have run away. I mean, of all people, he might be the first one that they start in terms of per persecution and killing and martyrdom. Maybe he could be the first one that they kill because they all knew him. They knew where he lived, and, and perhaps he would run away and abandon Jesus and recant. No, he didn't. Look at verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone over the entrance to the entrance of the tomb and went away. And then we're told Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, these same ladies were sitting opposite the tomb watching this happen. Third trait of a true friend of Jesus, a true follower, a true servant also gives to Jesus. 
mentioned just in passing a couple of weeks ago the various types of tombs they would have had in that day. Like today, there are different ways you could bury someone. They could dig you in the ground, put you in the ground in that way. An above ground, large box with a, with a top on it. That was very popular. Something like what we see in a lot of Latin American countries now, a mausoleum, sort of an above ground structure. And there would have been something that the most wealthy would have owned, which would be a cave dug into the side of a, of a mountain, a hill. Those would usually be inhabited by wealthy people because you'd have to pay someone to chip away for many, many days, perhaps months, with a pick and an axe to get a room built. And usually these are larger than what you think of. It's not just a hole that they throw a corpse into. This would be a room. And usually at the very least there would be sort of a bed on one side after you came into the door and a bed on the other side for a husband and wife, but oftentimes they would build out these rooms big enough for an entire family. So this is evidently what Joseph had done for his family. He had had this thing built for himself, I'm sure at no little expense. These were usually beautiful. There might have been a little garden out in front of the tomb. There, perhaps from the tomb you could look and see part of the city. It would have been a beautiful place that family members could come and pay their condolences to those who had passed. When Jesus died, instead of letting His body rot up there on the cross... Joseph remembered the tomb that he had built for him and his family. He wanted to honor Jesus. He decided to put Jesus into his family tomb. He went, again, it was probably an extremely risky thing for for him to do. I mean, he went to the governor who had just had Jesus executed, and he asked for his body. His fellow Sanhedrin most certainly would have looked down on him doing this. They would not have approved But he went to Pilate, he asked for the body. Time was of the essence, he didn't have long. If Jesus died around 3 o'clock, Sabbath began at 6 p.m. So he had to go from Golgotha uh, through the process in waiting to speak to Pilate, speak to Pilate, get that permission, go back, and then the whole process of getting Jesus down off the tomb, uh, unaffixing his body from the cross, which would have been no small task, and then carrying that body to the grave, wherever it may be. If it was close, this would have taken a while. And he just had three hours to do it, probably less than three hours to do all of this. So he did that. He hastily ran to Pilate's. He got permission. He ran back to the tomb, got him down off the cross. I'm sure he had to have had help to take the cross down and to get Christ off the cross. As quickly as he could, doesn't even say he went through the embalming process, which would have included all kinds, pounds and pounds, possibly some scholars say about 70 pounds of spices. This is what the ladies would do later on. They would come and they would bring these very expensive spices to do this on the first day of the week, Sunday. They were watching Joseph do this, and so they knew he had not the time to 
put those spices on him. All he had time to do was to wrap him very quickly in a linen shroud. He rushed around. He risked his reputation. He risked his life even. He gave this time. He gave this energy. He gave this very expensive, prominent tomb all to honor the Savior. What's the lesson? True friends of Jesus are givers. They give up everything. They give up reputation, life, money, time, energy, belongings. They give it all to follow their Lord. Doesn't this go right along with what you did in salvation? You gave your life to Christ? That means He owns it all. You know, there are all kinds of expectations people have out there about Christian giving. They levy on other believers. Some, some of them are sort of bizarre applications of misunderstood Old Testament standards of giving. Others take it to the other extreme. They think Christians don't have to give a thing. It's all grace. You don't have to do anything. There's no expectation whatsoever. As I think about giving to the Lord, and I'm talking about all kinds of giving, not just financial giving, but all kinds of giving, I think giving has three ideas. True giving has three ideas in the Christian life. One is that it is habitual. In the Old Testament, there were cycles of giving, and there was a calendar. They would go through this process, and there were cycles of giving, and you knew that you needed to give, and you needed to give, and there was a cycle of giving, and a lot of it was based on what God was providing you. And you literally, if you lived in the Old Testament times, you would literally give 10% of your, your value, your whole value as a farmer. You would give 10% of all of that to God twice a year. Then you would give all kinds of other sacrifices. Some scholars say up to 8% of your net worth you would give. So in a year's time, you would give approximately 27 28% of your net worth. You get in the New Testament... And though the Old Testament standard is, is not renewed, you do get this idea that there are cycles, there are consistent needs within the church, from the pastors to the ministry to the missions to the, the people who need. There are these cycles of giving. And so I believe one aspect of Christian giving is that it is habitual. You get yourself in the habit of giving and giving and giving. Another word that I think comes to my mind as I look at Scripture and I think about giving my time, my energy, my money, I think it ought to be sacrificial. It's not really giving if you're not, it doesn't cost you anything, right? If it's just the change that's rolling around in your couch, that's not really giving. If it's just the cash that's just burning a hole in your pocket, just a couple bucks, that's not really giving. You waste more money than that. I think it ought to be something that actually costs you something. And I, I draw this from the story that Jesus gave, or the, the, the thing that happened, and Jesus illustrated uh, the story of the widow's might, right? She gave more than everybody because it actually cost her something. These people numerically gave more. These people who had all this money numerically gave more than she did, but it actually cost her something. And she was the true giver. Giving is simply something that we ought to do in a sacrificial sense. So it's habitual, it's sacrificial. I think even about this man, Joseph of Arimathea, that was his family tomb. That had cost him a lot of money. All the time that he took, 
his reputation. He, he gave his reputation for this. You think, that, you think about this. He had already voted against everybody, so he was walking on thin ice as far as the Sanhedrin. His reputation by this point was gone. He gave it up for Jesus Christ. It was sacrificial. Habitual, sacrificial, and I also like the word, as you all have heard from 2 Corinthians 9, 7, cheerful. The act of giving should be something that brings you joy. And now, all of you penny pinchers, you're not off the hook. You're not able to say, well, it doesn't make me happy to give, so I guess I don't have to give. That's like saying, well, it doesn't make me happy to be faithful to my wife, so I guess I don't have to be faithful to my wife. It doesn't make me happy to drive the speed, so I don't have to drive the speed limit. No, you do it, and you ask God to help you find joy in giving. Find joy in giving your time. Find joy in giving your energy to the causes of Christ, your reputation, your money. Trust me, you can't outgive God. You'll receive joy upon joy upon joy the more you give to the Lord. Well, Joseph, in his gift here, I believe, represents the true heart of a friend of Jesus. He gives. Again, we have to look down deep into our own hearts. Am I a giver or a taker? Am I a giver or am I a saver? Do I give habitually, sacrificially, cheerfully? Do I give in this way? You know, I've been thankful to so many of you in this church through the years. This is an incredibly giving church. Sure, we go through times that our belts are a little tighter, but usually you guys are always filling up the coffers and blessing, and I don't believe it's because you are trying to wield power or have some kind of authority. I think you're really giving out of a desire and out of a way of worshiping Jesus. It is an extension of your love for Jesus. That's many of you, and that was Joseph in this story. Again, just a reminder, just like Joseph here, giving is not necessarily just money. It's time and energy and effort, talents, doing things maybe you know that nobody likes to do, but you're going to take up. That's a way to give. That's the heart of a giver, and that's the heart of a true friend of Jesus. So the friends of Jesus, they follow, they serve, they give. Is that you? All right, the enemies of Jesus. We won't spend nearly as amount of time on the enemies of Jesus. We did the friends of Jesus. Let's read about what these enemies were doing. Verse 62, the next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees, day of preparation, that's preparation for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was 6 p.m. Friday night to 6 p.m. Saturday night. The next day, so it began that day, the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before the Pilate. They said, Sir, remember how that imposter said, While he was alive, after three days I will arise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day. So they'd heard about Joseph, what Joseph had done on Friday, right before Sabbath. And on Sabbath they went, the day of preparation they went, and they said, We know about his claims to come up out of the grave. So let's figure out a way to seal that tomb and also put some guards there lest they try to defraud everyone. Pilate acquiesced, verse 65. You have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. What do the enemies of Jesus do? Enemies, number two, disbelieve, accuse, and undermine. First of all, they disbelieve. Driving reality for these priests, for these Pharisees, their fundamental characteristic was the characteristic of doubt. 
In Mark chapters 8, 9, and 10, multiple times we hear Jesus saying over and over that He would rise again. Same thing in Matthew 16, 21. We studied it. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders, the chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Same thing in Matthew 17. Jesus said to them, Son of man is about to be delivered to the hands of men. They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. His teaching was so frequent and so prominent that he would be raised up that even his enemies knew of this claim. But the bottom line is that they were not all inclined to inspect Scripture, to look at what the Bible says, to look at the evidence, to listen to the words of Jesus, to ask Him questions, to learn His thoughts, to inspect Scripture... No, they started with a bias. And that bias was all built around personal, selfish gain. That's what caused them to completely reject any notion of Jesus' deity, of His Messiahship, and certainly of His resurrection. Doubt is not just asking questions, digging deeper, faith-seeking more understanding, more depth. No, it is a bias. They had to believe Jesus was delusional, Because if he was speaking truth, if he were to really raise from the dead, all their money and power would be lost. It proved that he was right and they were wrong. It proved that everything that he said of them, that they were hypocrites, was true. In other words, they had a vested interest in keeping Jesus dead. So they would not believe him, not one word, not of their hearts. They convinced themselves it was all a lie. And they wanted to make sure no one could perpetuate that lie. So they go seeking to Pilate, have the tomb sealed and guarded. Second thing they do is they accuse him. Look what they call him, verse 63. We remember how that imposter accused him of pretending, pretending to be something he wasn't. He can't be the Messiah. He can't be God. He can't be rewarded and approved by the Father who would raise him up. He's an imposter. So their whole tone is anger, hatred, denial. One more thing about the enemies of Jesus, they work against Him. In other words, they undermine Him. They undermine His work. And the wonderful truth is that no enemy of God can ever truly undermine His work. God will have His way. In fact, all that they do is just going to be a joke for what God is going to do. It's just going to prove the power of God even more. The gates of hell cannot prevail against Him, but it doesn't keep the gates of hell from trying. And here they are trying to undermine God, to undermine the gospel. Now, I think this is good news for us. started out with a little bad news about our society a moment ago, but I think this is good news for us, right? It doesn't matter how bad things will get. The gospel will prevail. God's kingdom will move forward. It doesn't matter how free or not free we are in this country. The truth will go forward. The kingdom will be built. Read about what happened in the time that first couple of centuries of Christian history, some of the worst time in the world, the most vile, the most wicked, the most hateful, the most persecuting, there were the most martyrs in those days, proportionally speaking, and yet the gospel went forward and the church was growing by leaps and bounds. Yet these people try to stop this, they try to undermine it, they try to do everything they can to stop the message of truth. Their enemies of the Lord. 
enemies and the friends of our Lord. Which one are you? Who do you align with? Who do you surround yourself with? Who do you listen to? This is a very sad moment in the life of Jesus and His followers. There they are, gathered around the cross, still mourning, still following Him, even after He's dead, still faithful to Him, still giving to Him, still serving Him. Soon they would be gloriously astonished when less than 48 hours, three days by Hebrew calendar, He would rise up. So in spite of all the circumstances, they continue to follow Him. And let's pray that we would be like these faithful friends of Jesus who stayed with Him to the very end. Father, we do thank You for these wonderful examples. And may we be like these folks. May we be friends of Jesus. I pray, dear God, if there are anyone here, there is anyone here who does not have genuine faith. Maybe they've looked at their own heart. They realize that they were one of those easy believers. They thought if they could just mentally acquiesce to Jesus, they were in. Clearly, Jesus taught that they must follow Him, and perhaps they're realizing today they've never followed Jesus. Lord, grant them true faith, a faith that results in repentance. Grant them that faith. Call them to Your Son. Make them friends of Jesus. And Lord, all of us, as we look at this passage, may we be inspired to follow after Jesus more strongly, more faithfully, more sacrificially than we are even today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you'll stand with me for a time of benediction, then you can be dismissed. Now may we go following the friends of Jesus, knowing that our citizenship is not here, but it is in heaven from which the King of glory will one day arrive, transform our bodies to glory, and subject all things to himself. Amen.